Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 16 of the podcast, the topic is the future of human perception AI. Our guest is Gabi Zeidervelt. Chief Marketing Officer at Affectiva, the MIT Media Lab spin-out. We talk about perceptive AI, the future of augmented reality, data privacy, and ethical uses of face recognition. Gabby, how are you doing today? Hey, Trond. Uh, I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing? I am doing excellently. Um, I'm wondering what's, uh, what's going on over in Somerville today? Uh, Outside Boston. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been interesting the past four months, obviously, but um, I do uh, vehemently feel we're among the lucky ones. I'm here at home with my husband and 14 year old daughter. Everyone's uh, being productive in their own way, uh, the adults working from home. Uh, I do feel like we're among the lucky few, right? We have space to spread out. So, everyone has their own workspace. I typically don't really see them during the day, with some, which sometimes is a good thing. And also for Somerville standards, we have a really large backyard. So it's been great to spread out there. And it's also allowed us to occasionally invite like one or two friends over to have a drink and you can still kind of keep your distance. So in the scheme of things, we're lucky, although I think my husband is a little despondent because he just found out 10 minutes ago that they're not going back into the office until the next calendar year. So... <sighs> It'll wow. be a little adjustment. These are big adjustments, and big yeah. adjustments is indeed what I plan to talk to you about. Uh, first, yeah. let's let's just uh, touch on uh, some things. I mean, uh, Gabby, you and I know each other quite mm -hmm. well. I I have uh, tracked you since we got to know each other, and I've been watching, you know, Affectiva, where, where you uh, are the chief marketing officer. But you have a, a lot of interesting things in your background that I wanted to just briefly stop with. So. You've worked with uh, a Fortune 50, you've worked with IBM, um, and uh, your educational background, however, is yeah. in art history from Utrecht in the Netherlands. Yeah. I, I wanted to stop just by those two things, and we'll, 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 you know, we'll, we'll pick up on various things in your background, because I, I found uh, all of those very interesting. Um, let me, before I get to the art history, what, what is the job or educational experience that has meant the most to you as you are doing uh, going about your daily job at Affectiva and as you kind of look to the future, what one thing is it that kind of directs you and you re remember as having given you the, the most tools to work with? Yeah, from a job perspective, I think it certainly was, um, it was actually spread out over a couple of companies, but uh, I most vividly remember Centra Software. At the time, they were an online education platform, so kind of a competitor to WebEx, even in these those days, since bought by Saba. But when I was at Centra, I did a lot of international work. So I was responsible for the international partner relationships, so the resellers over in Asia and in Europe. Uh, we were building up international presence, so I was very much involved with standing up offices in other countries and training our salespeople over there and our channel partners. And also, this was a time in my life where it was still exciting and awesome to travel all the time for work. <laughs> I think when you get a bit older... Remember those kids. days. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. But I also had 
a really great set of co-workers, just really good people. And I got exposed to so many different sides of the business and to doing business in different international cultures. It was super uh, informative, super inspiring. And when I kind of look back on my career, I do think uh, of these international roles that I had as some that I really took the most away from. You know, it's interesting, right? One does so many things. And, and I think more and more, especially younger people are experiencing that they spend so few years really on any one given thing that they have a, a lot, they have a portfolio of, of different mm -hmm. things. But when you look back and, uh, you know, like you and I, you have a few years in the workplace, there still are these very few things that you really think that that really shaped me. Because of course, at a superficial level, you take something from from every job experience, but but uh, you know I find that I I ask this question pretty much of, of everybody I interview, and everybody has an answer to this question. But let me let me ask this question about art history, just because you know what is it about art that attracted you uh, to actually get educated in it, and uh, what would you say that has done to I can just imagine to your sensibilities, uh, which you know, go into, we're going to start talking about emotion, AI and other things. And there's a sensibility to technology as well. How do you relate these two things, working with a career in technology? And then at least proverbially, there's this sense that art is something different. Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. It's such a fun, we, I think we could talk about that for a full hour, right? And I see your guitars in the background, so we could talk <laughs> about music as well, right? And tying that into the bigger uh, art yeah. narrative. But what attracted to me to art was, um, I think art is super important just for humanity and society at large. It uh, allows an escape from daily life. It allows for imagination. It allows to develop different perspectives and insights. And what really attracted me to art history as a discipline is that in a way it is very multidisciplinary. It ties together um, a lot of sociology, a lot of history, philosophy, all these different disciplines come together when you study art history. And even at some point, um, I was looking to do a, to write a dissertation and work on my PhD. And I had a topic that was centered around cubist art theories, which were very much informed by n-dimensional geometry and the invention of the X-ray at the time which I thought was fascinating. And, and, and I never got to the level of being a, uh, you know, a mathematical genius of any stretch of the imagination, but just being able to tie all these different things together, I thought was incredibly fascinating. Uh, it was actually, I never ended up doing that PhD. The, the funding got taken away in the Netherlands where I was at the university at the time. And my professor said, oh, such a great topic, but why don't you go on unemployment for four years, as one can do in Holland, and write your dissertation? And I thought, well, why don't I not do that? <laughs> and that's actually how I ended up in the US and then by chance ended up in the, in the tech industry. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, the reason I'm asking is I'm doing a lot of research lately on po polymaths and on this mm -hmm. notion of expertise, uh, you know, whether we need more specialists or we actually need multi-pronged specialists that know deeply more two or more domains as opposed to just being generalists or if we should be seeking, you know, this kind of spiky type of knowledge. And there's different opinions wow, on that. Such but, a great but topic, I, though. Right? Oh, right? Man, yeah. but, but I would have to say, 
the fundamental reason I asked it was simply this. I just read a, a book recently about Leonardo da Vinci, and he's a fascinating character for many yeah. reasons. But, you know, if you think about earlier days, uh, but actually, like you pointed out, even Cubists, a lot of art has been developed with math in mind. And, and yes. you know, in, it was even an ideal for art mm -hmm. for centuries. Yeah. Yeah. So they are not as far apart as you imagine. Neither are they as far apart in the history of art, nor are they actually as far apart, you know, in the contemporary yeah. Yeah. scene of art. So I think it's just fascinating how at a deeper level, when you go deep, subjects aren't necessarily that different, or at least they can influence each other in, in very, in, in very important ways. Yeah, and, 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 and operate in a very symbiotic fashion, right? And I think Da Vinci right. certainly as the Romo Universale is a, is a prime example of that. But yeah. kind of to, your, to the beginning question you asked, right, I think it's also so important in technology because especially these days, we talk so much about the need for diversity in technology, which we all know from the data and the, and the research is woefully missing on many levels, gender, diversity, eth ethnic diversity. But I think we need to strive for diversity in the broadest sense of the word. It's also diversity in education. It's diversity in cultural background, in life experience. Because one thing we have learned, and I think um, the history of art points to that as well, it's, it's diversity that, that fosters innovation and creativity. In a tech company, if you have a team of people and they all come as much as we like MIT and Stanford, but if they all come from MIT and Stanford and they're all 20-something-year-old computer scientists, you create a singular worldview, right? People build what they know, and it's not that they're, they don't have an, a desire or an intent to be creative and innovative, but humans build what they know. So you mm -hmm. need these diverse backgrounds to be able to create and innovate. And especially with the topic uh, we're going to talk about today, which, you know, I guess is an extension of emotion AI, which we'll get into as a concept. But we were saying, as we were preparing this, to think about perception AI, which is wider and it's, which is why I started with art. Perception is such a deep concept and it's uh, deeply embedded in art. It's embedded in psychology. It's a, basically perhaps a nuclear concept that now is becoming more or you know arguably more important in technology mm -hmm. why do you think that's the case how do you actually define the term perception ai and and what yeah so let's start with that you know what is this animal that we wanted to talk about here today yeah so at affective so i'm going to just narrow it a little bit because it's again such a such a broad topic we could uh, cover, but at, at Affectiva, the, the company started out developing artificial emotional intelligence or emotion AI, and we broadened that beyond just emotions to really hone in on what we call human perception AI. And, and what this really centers around is the notion that for, for decades, we've been building technology that has advanced and advanced in cognitive capabilities. So especially these days when you think about AI systems, super smart, great cognitive capabilities. But in truly getting a full picture and full ability of delivering on what these technologies should, there is a big component missing, and that's emotional intelligence, right? And, and when you think about it, all these AI systems are really built and designed 
to interact with human beings or to serve and support human beings, whether it is yeah. to provide insight, provide data uh, on, on health, on research, on uh, you name it, uh, the financial systems, banking systems. There, there's components and bits of pieces of AI everywhere. It's in the vehicles that we drive. It's in the education platforms we like to use. So these systems, they're, they're human-centric. But again, yeah. this notion of emotional intelligence is missing from it. And to truly create effective and productive technology that needs to be perceptive, perceptive to how humans are interacting with them, uh, perceptive to how humans are behaving. And that got us as a company honed in on this notion of human perception AI. So perception AI, very ambitiously, even emotion AI yeah. is slightly ambitious. Can you oh, yeah. unwrap that concept for us as well? Because emotion AI is not something that everybody walks around talking about. When, when, when did you start coining this term and, and who else is using it and how, what does that really mean? So emotion AI, can you basically just describe what that currently is? Yeah, absolutely. So we coined, Affectiva coined the term, I would say at this point, probably five years ago. And prior to that, the technology was referred to often as emotion sensing technology or emotion recognition technology. And then together with Rana El Kalyubi, our, our co-founder and CEO, I remember one day we were talking a lot about, okay, so we are, as a company, we, we use a machine learning, we have massive amounts of data, we build our own custom convolutional neural nets. So certainly uh, quite focused on, on different deep learning techniques and approaches. So we're like, yeah, we, we are really an AI company, but yet we talk about this clunky emotion recognition stuff. And in reality, what we're building is technology that can sense and adapt to human states, especially human emotions, human expressions, facial expressions, vocal expressions. So that got us thinking on the terms of artificial emotional intelligence, still fairly clunky. And I remember she and I were prepping for some kind of event that she was keynoting at. And we jokingly said, you know, we need to come up with something snappy that, that can just even fit in a hashtag when people want to talk about this. Something like hashtag emotion AI. And then we're like, oh, no, oh, that That's actually it. sounds really good. That's it. Yeah. And you start testing it, and after a while, it sticks. But but the premise was again that we live in a world surrounded by all these advanced technologies, all these advanced systems that interact with humans, great cognitive capabilities, but the emotional intelligence is lacking from it. And as a company focused on analyzing human face, we also have capabilities for voice, but face is the primary area that we're focused on. Analyzing the human face is a key element in how humans express emotional intelligence and read emotional intelligence. Because the meaning of how do you analyze the human face? How so, do you do it? Yeah, so how we do it today, and I'm just going to explain it in, in very rudimentary terms, is we have software that can access a camera, or a video feed, and we analyze, we first of all identify human, identify human face in an image, and then we, at a pixel level, look at facial muscle movement and gradations of that, 
and that then gets classified as a certain facial muscle movement, movement or a certain facial expression, and different combination of facial expressions map to an emotion. But what that means, so that's just observing what you see on a face. But not just one face, right? I mean, I have been to your offices and I've heard stories and I just read uh, Rana's book. And what amazes me about the journey that you've been on is, I mean, just taking one, the amount of people she recruited to study faces who sat oh there goodness, painstakingly yeah. in Egypt, I believe, and, and took down different annotations yeah. on what a human face is in its different... It reminds me of my old psychology textbooks where... Uh, you know, these different faces of human emotion were all depicted on a, on, on a piece of paper. Little, however, did I realize how, how many different variations even those researchers must have gone through oh just goodness, to yeah. characterize the basic human emotions of fear and surprise. Now, fast forward to five, ten years ago when this started happening here with Affectiva, how many... How many faces have you looked at and how many people have been involved? Because for when, what I, and we will talk about the technology in a second. There's obviously some uh, deep technology involved here, but there's also some deep human involvement. Oh yeah, absolutely. That you can't forget. Oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so for us, the data that we've collected over the years is massively important as, as the data is needed to train machine learning algorithms or classifiers and then test and validate them. We, to date, have analyzed, I don't know the exact number because it changes every single day, but it's, I believe, 9 million, oh, five, oh, let's say 9 million faces in 87 countries. Now, we gather the majority of that data through studies we do with some of our clients and partners in the area of media analytics. So this data is collected from people that participate in market research studied studies and are paid to participate and are then explicitly asked, can we turn on the camera to record your face for analytics purposes? Some people opt out, a large portion of people opt in. And that's how we've analyzed these 9 million faces. You ask me how many people that is. In reality, most people do two different studies. So we captured a face twice. So if you want to be super accurate, it's 9 million faces, but half of that in terms of unique individuals. We've done these studies again in 87 countries. So we have amazing representation of diverse data, um, diversity in terms of cultural, ethnic diversity, in terms of gender, in terms of age. And that is really important as well. We've well, exactly. And we, we're going to talk about this in a second. I mean, facial recognition is kind of a big, hot political potato yeah, at the yeah, moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it has to do with what, what, whose faces have you been putting into the analysis? That does seem to matter quite a bit. That, that is a big part of it. And also kind of how diverse is the team that's actually modeling and testing these algorithms, right? Well, that, those are actually the initial people I was thinking about, the people in Egypt. So she had a lot of yeah. labelers uh, hired yeah. to, because before you can, I mean, this goes down to, to what machine learning really is, right? I, I understand it, uh, your procedure to be a combination. You, you have an enormous manual kind of tuning of the system. Yes, oh, a training set, you know, and to create a training set, can you explain a little bit what they actually go through to to train this? And then I want to get into the technology of it yeah. too. 
Yeah. So when you think about um, analyzing the human face for expressions and then inferring emotion from different combinations of expressions, there was in the 70s a system that was developed by uh, Paul Ekman. It's called the Facial Action Coding System or FACS. And it basically identifies all these different facial muscle movements and that map to a certain action unit, as he used to call them. And um, people are trained on how to annotate human faces. So basically label or mark up, they look at an image. Yeah. For us, we look at video because an image is you know, it's a snapshot, right? A video is way more telling me because you can see the onset and offset of an expression. Yeah. So we look at video and then these human observers, these data annotators look and basically write down, well, I'm totally simplifying it in a ridiculous manner because we have an automated system we built for them so it's all computerized but on the computer they more or less write down what it is that they observe and depending on what type of algorithm or machine learning classifier we're building we ask the team to annotate for certain things so for example if you want to train an algorithm that detects levels of drowsiness in human beings you basically get a lot of videos of people getting sleepy. Now, I should also say we study drowsiness mostly in the context of automotive and context is extremely important. Yes. So you want data of people getting sleepy in a car. Very difficult data to collect, but that's a whole different story. But once you have that video data of someone, many examples of people getting drowsy in a car, our data labeling team in Cairo will be given a subset of video. Our machine learning scientists have all these protocols and scripts developed for them. They get trained on what to annotate or what to mark up when they look at these videos. When you said the word classifier, what exactly do you entail? It's a machine learning it's a, it's term. It's an algorithm. I, I, typically, uh, typically, it's a classification of something that the algorithm detects. But typically, when I explain it to people who are not in the field of machine learning, I just describe it as a, as a, as a model or an algorithm. Uh, and to people who actually need a primer on what an algorithm is, what would, how would you explain that? It's basically a, a, some set of instructions yeah, that a machine yeah, can execute. Typically software, right? It's a set of instructions that allows software to run. Got it. And in our so, case, it, it, it would, for example, be a piece of software that can detect... Um, eyelid closure as an indicator of drowsiness, a yawn or something. Tell me a little bit how, how this has been used. So we'll, we'll talk about automotive. It seems like automotive is a, a very big field where you have tried to apply this technology where this interest right now. When did this interest start, by the way, in automotive? Many years ago, actually, even before the company was founded, our co-founders, so Rana El-Kayoubi and Rosalind Picard over at the Media Lab, um, at the Media Lab, um, at MIT Media Lab, I should say, to be specific, there's, there's a lot of large corporations that are sponsors and partners of the MIT Media Lab and that are also invited in to see MIT research and um, foster collaborations between industry and academia. And in that environment, they had been working on this emotion recognition technology and started actually getting quite a lot of uh, interest out of industry, lots of different types of use cases that were envisioned. And even at the time, and we're talking about 15, 14 years ago, they started getting interest out of the automotive industry because they were saying, okay, with this technology, you can get a deeper understanding of what's happening with people in a car. Yeah. 
at the time, it was seen as a very futuristic use case. Now, fast forward maybe another eight years or so, at Affectiva, we've been active in a number of different markets. We're, we're getting, you name the use cases, we've probably heard them all at this point, from a variety of industries, retail, gaming, education, healthcare, uh, robotics. Um, we we're getting all this interest in our technology, but we, we're a small company. We can't service everything. And it was... So automotive is one of the, the ones you chose yeah, to go forward with. But very deliberately, because at the time, we, and this was about four, four and a half years ago, we saw a sudden increase in inbound interest from automotive companies wanting to learn about this emotion AI and how it could work in a vehicle. So we did a whole assessment and deliberately decided this is a market that's ripe with opportunity for affective. But enlighten me on this, because if we listen to Elon Musk, which a lot of people do, he starts, uh, kind of thinks that a lot of things are just not needed. So most cars are crappy anyway. Why would you want to know what's going on inside the vehicle? People aren't really that great drivers and technology can already, um, he says, I guess Tesla is already some 200 X uh, safer than a human driver, you know, how much safer do we have to be? Why is there such a need to have cameras inside of a car? And what are you looking for there apart? Drowsiness, I get, right? Yeah. A, a driver that gets drowsy, I have been drowsy. And once I recognize it, I go get a cup of coffee. And then, of course, when you get to your destination, you're hardwired for five more hours and it's not good. <laughs> yeah. But but anyway, when you don't recognize you're drowsy, it's a, it's a big problem and it leads to accidents. And that that, that relationship, I, I, I do understand. Mm -hmm. But I guess on, from his perspective, you can check that with sensors uh, in many, many other ways and they can be fairly automated, um, you know, outside the car. Wh why do you need to know what's going on inside the car? What's the justification? And all right, so you, you said drowsiness. What other use cases is there and what other data are you looking for? Is it uh, purely the driver you're interested in or are there other uh, elements of the in, in yeah. indoor car environment that are relevant to yeah. automotives or to anybody else? Yeah, Sh should I be caring about yeah. other things when I'm in my car? I think you should, but let, let's uh, let's unpack that one. I do think to uh, the, the Musk point, right? I, if we live in a world where there's only Teslas in the road, sure. If there's only yeah. fully automated vehicles, you don't need human drivers. But for the foreseeable or at least near-term future, although Tesla did quite well apparently in their last quarter, but for the foreseeable future, there uh, will be other cars. Have, I think we can hypothesize. There will still be human drivers. And humans right. are fallible. We all know that. Um, also, the cause of most road fatalities and road accidents are caused by drowsy or distracted drivers. Yeah. So in, in, the, in the field of automotive, a huge focus has been for a long time and will continue to be for a long time, kind of mitigating for these risks around road safety. And again, understanding human drowsiness and distraction. There's also a school of thought, and, and we certainly subscribe to that, is that you want to have, a, if you want to have a system in a vehicle that can accurately detect that, it probably should be multi-sensor or multi-data inputs. Like you can understand if someone is distracted maybe by lane drift or steering wheel movement, yeah. but you can also assess that by head movement. 
But a head movement can also be someone's shoulder checking when they're driving. So you need to kind of analyze and again, based on data, determine is this safe or not safe. Distraction is frequently still caused by devices. So if the in-vehicle system could detect, this is object detection, I see a cell phone, activity detection, and you can measure that from body key points. So activity detection, the cell phone is being moved to the hand, and then you see talking on the face, and now you see the eyes moving away, that's distraction. And it's those type of things from a safety perspective that the automotive industry wants to look at. And they'd like to use computer vision because having eyes in the camera allows you to see a scenario like I was just describing. Computer vision is a term that is evocative, but it's a little bit hard to understand. Can you unpack the term computer vision? So what you're entailing here is a camera attached to a computer that actually starts to analyze things. Um, I from, a, from an actually, image or video, I think that's probably from the an image or a video description. And then yeah. the way they analyze it, you there was a term I wanted you to unpack earlier, but you said you're using a convolu convolutional neural network, a CNN. What, what are what are those networks? And you know, in layman terms, what do they do? Yeah, they're basically layered software architectures that look that for in our instance look at different patterns on the human face. And with the data that we've put into those allows us to um, unpack. So you kind of think of it almost as a pipeline where you have um, a human, an image of a human face going in. And then this, this CNN, this, this network, it's a software architecture that at different layers unpacks what it sees in that image and does pattern recognition. And then the output of that is a data associated with a software metric or a classifier. I, I'm just uh, pushing on this. I, I just ran an episode uh, uh, very recently on deep learning, um, you know, with a, uh, with a computer scientist describing it. And I think it's just different. And, you know, you, you have a different tack on it. And it's just oh, yeah. fascinating how you were describing it oh, in, in also, a way that's a little more intuitive. So there are many well, ways to and, describe oh, how yeah, this works. And also, I'm not a machine learning scientist. Uh, if, if one of... You know, my, my colleagues in machine learning heard me say that a d description, they'd probably unpack it in 10 different ways and explain to me why I'm wrong. But that's but in, the point, though, is concept, that they're, though, that's what it, it the is. concept, yeah, and yeah. the concept is important to understand at many different levels. And, and I think the, the way you explained it, you know, it makes sense to some people. So, so that's yeah. important. Can we talk about another use case for a minute? Media analytics uh, seems yeah. to also have been something that you at Affectivo have been doing for a while. So this is... Yeah. It's ad testing, right? So you're testing what the efficiency of a uh, of an ad, and I don't really know much about being on a set testing for an ad, but I'm, I can imagine that they're taking some footage and then they're testing this on on the audience. How does your software come into play in ad testing? Yeah, yeah so ad testing in the space of uh, media analytics is one of the areas we're active in, but right now one of the areas that's, I think, the biggest use case for us. And the way that that works is we partner with large market research firms, such as a Kantar. They work with the largest brands out there in the world, the Fortune 500 companies that spend massive amounts of money on advertising around the world. And right. in the advertising industry, there's a tremendous amount of testing done to determine effectiveness, impact, uh, and with impact, especially sales impact. 
What yeah. our technology does, we are, uh, so Kantar has very robust research methodologies and a whole product platform that they use to, with their clients for testing. Our software is integrated into that platform. And imagine they work with paid participants who partake in these studies. Let's say I am a paid participant. I get invited to uh, take a study or do a survey. They ask me some questions. That's how they typically determine self-reported gender and demographic data. And then yep. as part of the study, uh, it will say something along the lines of, uh, we would now like you to look at a video and we would like to turn on your camera and record your facial expressions as you watch this video. And then we ask for permission to turn on the camera and they have to actively click and give permission. And then we ask them for permission to record their face. This is, by the way, all done online. So the beauty of it, of it is, is that that's fairly inexpensive and it can scale because you don't have to bring focus groups into a room. Got it. Um, and then as the, this person, if I'm a participant, as I'm watching this ad, the camera is on and in the background, it records my facial expressions. So it's unobtrusive, uninvasive. People don't have to strap on some kind of device or anything. We just record their face and what we see. And because we've done this at scale, we've been able to develop norms and quantitative measures that allows you to compare uh, how, for example, if you're doing a confection ad in France, how does your ad compare to other confection ads in France? Um, so you can detect whether an audience is laughing at a joke or is maybe laughing, but there's also something else going on. So it's not a good laughter because they're also at the back of their mind. You're hitting some sort of cultural vibe that you shouldn't be hitting and you can detect even very tiny things like that. Yeah, you can de detect yeah. all kinds of yeah. reverberations. Yeah, and it's and it's looking at at how they react to the content, and if if the ad is a humorous ad, which many of them are, a smile is a good indicator that people like it. Uh, but disgust is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Sometimes there right. are ads that are intended to be disgusting, and you want to get that disgust reaction. It's the emotional reaction. Yeah. Let and me engagement, fast forward. like are people also paying attention? Because if they're not, you have a problem with your ad. You need them to pay attention. So we've talked about automotive and talked about media analytics, but there's another use case that is kind of dying to, uh, screaming out to me, I should say. We are in the middle of a pandemic and mm -hmm. we are all in this situation. We are on these video conferences and I was actually doing a, a little uh, segment uh, yesterday where I was analyzing one of these virtual events, the uh, RSA, the robotics conference, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. went all virtual this year. And I attended actually after the event was over, but I attended, you know, online and I just did a little description of how I felt the experience was being at that conference. Uh, so, you know, the listeners can, can hear that, but it strikes me that one of the f takeaways is we're not really there yet when it comes to, uh, you know, online events. I'm not going to be attending that kind of conference for a decade. I can tell you that. I, I, I'm simply not going to show up to yeah. these kinds of events unless the feedback and a lot of elements improve. I could just imagine that some of your technology must be useful uh, to be brought to bear on things like random video conferences, but even maybe more importantly, large events where you want some sort of feedback. And 
uh, I mean, this has plagued kind of the online yeah. space for, for years, the educational space. Think oh, about yeah. all the kids going back to school yeah. and all the teachers who are trying to then motivate people where they see zero reaction. They see maybe some faces, yeah. but they cannot monitor 30 faces. Yeah. And yeah, if you have a hundred people in the audience, I, I can't, you know, so what? I'm going to end up looking at one screen and then I maximize one screen and I see some random audience member. What if they have a bad sense of humor? Maybe my joke actually was yeah, good. Yeah. Or, or maybe that's the only person yeah. who is laughing and I get a completely wrong, wrong idea. How can you guys fix this? Yeah, so it's super interesting. Um, absolutely. And, and there's, there's different aspects and angles to it. And by the way, we've had a lot of questions about this. And the reality, just from a, from a product perspective, where we stand today is that, yes, we could totally service this type of use case. Do we have today an out-of-the-box solution? No, because at the end of the day, it would require to be integrated into something like a Zoom or a conference platform. So there's a lot of lots of conversations going on right now, but nothing that has yet been brought to market. So I just want to be transparent about that. But what's interesting, uh, if you look at your conference example, um, Look at it, for example, from the perspective of a presenter, like the one-to-many scenario. I will be delivering probably over Zoom or over some kind of live stream my presentation to the audience. When I do that on a big stage and there's hundreds of people in the room, you, you get a, a feel of the vibe out there. You, yeah. you maybe catch a few faces in the front row and you can see how they react. Often, you know, you, you, your eye latches onto someone and you keep looking back at that person. They're kind of your beacon for how your stuff is resonating. Uh, like you said, you know, you crack a joke and people laugh or maybe one person laughs. That's feedback too, right? And that is sorely lacking. So from a presenter perspective, there's no audience feedback, which for any of us who've presented online, makes it really kind of challenging to, I guess, to, to deliver with enthusiasm and, and conviction because it's almost yeah. like they're just throwing it out there into cyberspace, no clue how it's resonating. Yeah, I, I actually, I misspoke about yeah. this. It, it's, of course, RSA is the cybersecurity conference. There were robotics was, was a, one of the topics, ah, okay, but yeah, it is, yeah. of course, yeah. it's a cybersecurity. Oh, yeah, cyber yeah, yeah. yeah. Robo business and others are, are also probably going to go online, but this was RSA, which is, of course, a cybersecurity yeah. conference. But yeah. there were all, all of these robotic topics were, were yeah. there as well. Anyway. Yeah, yeah and, uh, but, but, but the, the challenge, and I think that's also the fatigue that people are getting from these, these online conferences is that when you think about yourself and when you go to an in-person conference, um, people do that for a variety of reasons, right? So sometimes, and, and let's, let's not kid anyone here, sometimes it's a boondoggle, right? It's nice to just get, get out of the office for a few days. But you do that because you want to meet other people. Exactly. You want to get inspired. Even the experience of being in the room and someone even famous and really good speaker is, is presenting. Oh my gosh. Sometimes we don't even want that. So, I mean, this is kind of an unfair competition, uh, with, uh, you know, live and, and virtual events, but also even in live events, you, 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 we're not there for the speaker. So this brings me to this question of being tethered to the screen, which actually plagues online learning. Mm -hmm. It is a problem with conferences going online. The point isn't the screen in and of itself, right? Uh, it, How it's are we going to get engagement? I think, and the right. lack of interest. How are we going to get that kind of engagement? So your answer is some sort of camera technology, but 
but maybe not a camera technology that forces everybody to gaze at the screen at the same time. Isn't there some more passive camera technology that could be put into a room so you could actually capture more informal things? I mean, there's all kinds of privacy concerns with this, oh, but I'm yeah. just sensing that um, we shouldn't really try to recreate a conference. We should make a different experience. Yeah. And it's at the end of the day, it's all about human connection, right? And, right. And especially with these larger one-to-many, many-to-many scenarios, that's really difficult, right? If, if you and I are chatting on a Zoom video call and you can see someone's face, you know, it's still not the same as if we were to go out for a cup of coffee somewhere, but, you know, you can, you can build a connection. Right. If you're suddenly talking to 200 people, that notion is lost. So I think yeah. if imagine if a technology like ours was built into a system like Zoom, you could envision a way that that also for the audience there's a type of dashboard that gives you insight into how others are experiencing the event. In an yeah. ideal situation, I think it should also be kind of multi-signal or multi-sensory, right? Maybe it's our technology and it asks for permission to turn on the camera and we don't send data to the cloud. We actually can run our stuff in real time on device so we don't have to store data. To be but also with. it could be anonymous, right? So you yeah. want to get a sense of what's going on in that yeah, that's a room very good and the other room, yeah. you know, where, where is there more emotional sense, yeah. is, you know, action going on exactly. if you want so an intense yeah. experience. And I love yeah. that idea. Idea, right in the other room like if you have a conference with multiple tracks or multiple things taking place at the same time or even if it's a recording that then gets posted for an event that took place a week prior for someone to look at it and say hey this this event had the most engagement or in this track these are the events that garnered the most engagement or these are the moments that garnered the or, or or even just in between those two simultaneous events here is that kind of reaction versus the other kind of reaction there's just so much data that we potentially yeah. are losing oh, and this absolutely. is data we are as humans we are gathering this data yeah. but i mean we're not perfect right so but that's what could, i'm trying to say is yeah. we could do things we are not currently doing oh if we God. are at an yeah. event you and could enhance the experience oh, rather than try yeah. to copy the experience absolutely right and if you think you know about zoom look if, if people look at the bottom of their zoom screen you have chat and there's two reactions you can give yeah. well maybe the reaction should be more but the reactions could also be grabbed from your face based on the camera data you share but what if yeah. you could combine all of that right so what if the chat data gave insight as well and yeah. and think about it too for the event organizers as post-event data you know, what yeah. are the presentations and what's the type of content that people engaged with the best? What is the format that people like best? That people like live stream better than a pre-recorded Zoom with a live Q&A? There's all these different things people are experimenting with now. But you said it, we're leaving data, valuable data. But this is um, you and I, right, Gabby? And we are, we are adults and we are already have our own set ways. I want to hear about your student projects because you have makeathons going at <laughs> Affectiva. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. So what is that all about? Yeah, so this is awesome. And I'll give a little bit of history and context for that. So at the beginning of the call, we also you know, we talked about diversity and the need for diversity. And, and as a company, we've also had a very strong ethos for a long time of, of mentoring, a little bit of paying it forward, but also kind of having a hand in essentially developing the next generation of AI leaders. And right. 
as such also developed for ourselves a pipeline of talent. And for a number of years now, we have had a very successful summer in-person internship program where we get interns from all kinds of different backgrounds, different gender, different ethnicity. Some have really multidisciplinary educations. We get interns in marketing. We get interns, especially in uh, the machine learning uh, department. We get interns in engineering. And we run this very robust program in the summer. Uh, Some of these students are with us for more than two months. Uh, We give them a good dose of mentoring. We bring in interesting speakers. So it's very much an education program. And what's interesting is that some of our recent hires have been former Affectiva interns. I, I, for example, have a marketing superstar who was an Affectiva intern. And when she graduated, we, we snapped her up. And the same in engineering and machine learning. Now, uh, also, it was super popular. The last time we opened it up, we typically in the, like around December, we open up for applications and then take a couple of months to process it because we had 600 applications for internships. So it's a five week program. Hold on. Yeah. So that's where it's a different story. That's what, no, that's where it's not a different story, but that's what it stemmed from. But to your point, how do you do something like that during a pandemic when you can't get together? Right, And it ties right, right. back to what you were saying earlier, like, do you recreate the thing online or do you try and reinvent the thing online? Right. Because recreating, we just could not see that happen because we couldn't really offer the same type of experience. And that's how we landed on that five-week uh, AI education program. Right. We have opened it up to 53 students. We have uh, lined up 18 external mentors. So the students are high school students and college students. The mentors are graduate students, and some of them are PhD candidates. We have people from Canada, all over the US and Egypt. We made sure to also pick a number of students that have never coded in their life before. Wow. And it's also super awesome. We have a few people that are also double graduates or they're doing double studies uh, and double coursework in music, for example. Uh, Some are artists. So again, that that multidisciplinary, very diverse background. It's been focused on an education program now. So five weeks, half of the program was a lot of self-guided learning. So our team uh, put a lot of time into putting coursework together on uh, separate uh, different topics. Yeah, one of them is yeah. around data and data visualization, and one is on machine learning. Uh, so we brought the, this, these mentors in. We brought a lot of external speakers in that would present on certain topics. So very much education in nature. And then yeah. earlier this week, we kicked off the last phase, which is that makeathon. So well, see, that's what I'm wondering because it all sounds like this is giving back and it's giving people an enormous chance to tap into a very rich experience that you are having as a company in a fascinating, fast-moving field of AI. Um, but are these guys coming up with any ideas that yeah, well, are... Well, ask, ask me in two weeks, right? So, so we just released the prompts to them. And of course, we and, and some of us um, get way out there, like, we should let them build this and that. And I'm like, no, yeah. let's focus this back on things that could actually maybe also help us. Uh, in the business. So what are some of the topics that you, have you asked them on healthcare? Have you asked them about in-vehicle experiences? Have you asked them? Yes. Yeah, we created prompts and we have uh, a couple of areas. 
just tying back to the video conferencing conversation we had, because we as right. a company have not had the bandwidth to actually build something yet, because we're so focused on our other two markets. One of the prompts was, yeah. what if you could create a Zoom plugin that could help battle Zoom fatigue? How would you detect Zoom fatigue? And if you detected it, what would you report back? And then what would the system do about it? Yeah. So there's a number of groups. I think we right now, are, the groups have formed. There's 13 groups. There's a few of them that picked the video conferencing. There's also a telehealth prompt that was um, around, I guess it's in reality, it's video conferencing, but then more a doctor-patient relationship. Well, look, that is very fascinating oh because, gosh, yeah. you know, the online therapy market uh, should have ballooned by now. Mm -hmm. but yeah. uh, But as this pandemic goes on, I mean, there's a very serious public health use case here for, think about the fact that we have, you know, many of these things that were tried during the pandemic were things that historically have been tried before, but this whole mass society lockdown has not been tried yes. before. And I've read a lot of articles where psychologists are saying, we really don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. One thing is, you know, locking down a city like you even see in Hollywood movies for like an outbreak over, you know, X number of weeks, because you're, you know, obviously there's people are getting sick in that little town. Now we, we are talking about lock and we have, right. We have experienced near lockdown, many of us for, for, for weeks and months. And, what and happens more or less to on a global level too, which is more or less on a global level. Could you potentially do some sort of mass monitoring? I mean, I would love to have a pre and post data on that. What if you had some oh facial reactions and interviews with a thousand people in 30 different countries pre-pandemic talking about their life and then imagine having them talk about their life when they're under lockdown and i don't know it's That's, just it's this entire pandemic you know it's such an experience uh, yeah. good and bad i yeah. think that yeah. you guys actually have a window to the soul that a lot yeah. of us don't have yeah and i think so too like like imagine and I'm just kind of calling out Zoom because most people have used it and it's, and it's in these days one of the dominant platforms. But what if Zoom was able to collect this data at scale anonymously? You know, and, and, and map it also with other data, the duration of an average session. You know, do people share their screens? Do people at this point even turn on the cameras? Maybe the first week into this, everyone's like, yay, turning on the cameras because, you know, they're still bothering to wash their hair. And now four months later, it's like, no, I can't be bothered. But imagine all those different types of data and marry that also with emotional data as an indicator of well-being yeah. and mental state. Oh, that would be so interesting. So interesting. Wow. A lot of things, a lot of things to discuss here. Um, yeah. Are there any other startups doing interesting work in the field that we have been talking about? So perception AI, emotion AI, what are some of the peers or, or even partners or, or, or others that are, that are doing exciting things that are latching on to the same, same idea? I mean, you, you know, you mentioned working with uh, with automotives and stuff. But what about on the smaller, on the startup side? Are there other startups that are doing interesting things yeah, here? Yeah, uh, first one actually that comes to mind is Cogito. They're also a Boston-based company. They also spun out of MIT Media Lab. And they're also looking at emotional intelligence, uh, emotion AI, but from a voice perspective. And their main use case is in call centers, which I think is massively fascinating. Um, call center jobs 
can be very, very stressful. They're fast-paced, high volume, and often these call center reps have to deal with people that get rude and nasty. And burnout is a real issue. Yet, you also need to ensure as a brand that your call center reps are representing you correctly. So they're doing a lot of voice analytics to... Uh, it's mostly focused around ensuring call center rep health and coaching and guiding them. And I, I just yeah. think that's that's another really fascinating uh, angle in, uh, in a great use case. So, so that that brings us, you know, more specifically to you know where are we heading in the next decade? How, how fast do you think this is going to go? How quickly will more advanced approaches to perception AI be introduced in various fields. We have talked in depth about the automotive use case. We have discussed ad analytics and then, you know, briefly talking about conferencing and, and uh, that, that use case. So those are at least three different ones. And then you have the pandemic overall with yeah. all of that panoply of, of different kind of challenges. Yeah. Where, where is this going? I mean, where do we go from here with perception AI and, and also the privacy challenges we were just kind of scratching the surface of? Where is this heading? Yeah, I think, I think we're going to have a type of reckoning, if you will. I think because we live in such an AI hype and such an AI bubble and every single piece of software that comes to market has to be AI, of course. I think there's also a lot of these emotion AI-ish systems out there that are just not developed and deployed with ethics in mind. Um, mm. I also think what's happened with facial recognition, um, we as a company, by the way, often get lumped in with facial recognition. We, we are not. Yeah, how, how do you, how do you handle that? Uh, because, it's, you know, if I don't know much about you, no. I would say, well, you are, you are all the same. You, you know, the, the police yeah. is using face recognition. They are probably deploying your technology just like everybody else. You know, all these tech companies lumped together. You're all enabling uh, random use cases of facial recognition. A simple explanation we provide is that facial recognition is used for identification and authentication of human beings. They analyze the face to do that. Affectiva also analyzes the face, but we do it anonymously. We don't identify or authenticate the individual it's an anonymous face to us. Even though it's 9 so million So you wouldn't faces, even sell, you don't even sell to that use case. No, So if the don't. police comes to you and no. says, you and know, I love your technology, we are, yeah. we want to deploy this. Yeah. In the early days of the company, there was an intelligence, there was a, a, um, a VC arm or a, a venture capital, an investment arm of a security agency approached the founders of the company and asked them to pivot to a surveillance use case uh, for an investment of 40 million, which if you are a company struggling to make payroll in a few months is quite attractive. But the founders at the time decided, no, this is not in line with the values we have established for our company. We do Very not want this to be deployed. And to this day, a good nine or so years later, we still get inquiries, but we do not sell to surveillance. We have not sold to government and we are not selling to law enforcement. But is there an ethical way of doing facial recognition and how should the, because that is not going to go away, Gabi, no, right? So you are one company and you're not doing that, but, yeah. uh, and, and, and Facebook, I believe, or Amazon, they have yeah. both said, you know, made announcement and said, you know, we're going to stop the police yeah. from using our technology for one year. IBM has said they're going to stop whatever that means that IBM says they're going to stop working on yeah. facial recognition. I have a hard time thinking that's even possible, right? Yeah. Given how fundamental the use case is, but they, they must have defined it in a way that they're not going to, apply it to 
questionable use cases, but it's going to happen. So how, how should it be done? Yeah, it's, it's really for the industry to get better at focusing on developing and deploying it ethically, right? The, the, the big, big backlash against facial recognition has been because it just doesn't work properly. It doesn't recognize people with darker skin tones, especially if they're women. And yeah. th that is not a question of, you know, a discussion around AI for good. It's about good AI. And in this case, it's crap. And AI. why is it not doing so? Is it because there's not enough labeled data that distinguishes between different types of uh, women in different cultures? Uh, or is it purely that the databases is, are, are modeled to pick out certain types of stereotypically looking faces and, and have some sort of previous priming that they are in a criminal database or something. Where, where is the all, problem? All is that. it a multifaceted problem? It, it right? is a multifaceted problem. Uh, it, it certainly is also a data problem. If you're not correcting data that's representative of all people in use cases, then it's, it's not yeah. going to work accurately. But, but that's broad. It's very broad. It's very difficult in collecting. You know, people look different, not just age, gender, ethnicity, right? There are, there are women out there that wear a hijab. There's old men that have beards um you need data Gabby, whose responsibility is this because no. the technologists the ones we were talking about earlier the ones that are hired by all these companies they just went ahead and made what they thought was really good software and then they made i'm caricature you know making caricature here but you know then they made a lot of apparently looking really fantastic software that performed at the surface level really well, yeah. that made all kinds of predictions and, 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 and it was going well. Who's to blame for the fact that these systems, when you look at it more closely, are not working well? And, and in the future, how can you make sure that they are taking more sides into account and, and that they are more reflective of, of a bigger population? Uh, I think the technology industry, the people building the technology, they are the ones at fault. I think there is room and discussion for having thoughtful regulation. But then again, these complex these technologies and how they are developed are so complex that can we really expect government to fully understand it and build regulation on it? It's questionable. So I think it needs to be industry that holds itself accountable and, and an industry consortium uh, that should put their stake in the ground. Can it not be, can it not be both? I mean, should, I, I have seen have this from, multi, from it all sides. It should be multi-stakeholder, that for sure. But I think it should be. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I've been in government trying to understand technology. Yeah. I have been in think tanks advising yeah. government on technology, and I have been in the private sector selling technology. I mean, I've been yeah. from all sides, and it's complicated on all ends, right? Because you have different concerns, and at any given moment, one concern is always your main concern. So yeah. even if you put people like you and I in government, we would suddenly then take on a lot of government concerns and we would start forgetting the, the concerns that yeah. industry has to think about it is it's a conundrum and it but i also yeah absolutely i i do think um the onus for fixing this should lie with the tech companies they should just realize and acknowledge that they've built poor technology and find a path forward to fix it, but they can only do it with the multi-stakeholder input we are we are a member of the partnership on ai which is an uh kind of an industry consortium that brings together a lot of government and um, 
civil rights type of stakeholders as well. And it's fascinating because here I am having a conversation uh, on the use cases for emotion AI in education with uh, human rights lawyers and the ACLU and the Hastings Institute. And that's awesome. And they, yeah, they are asking difficult questions, very fair questions. But if we as a tech industry just stay within our bubble thinking we can fix that without input from those type of constituents, we're never going to fix this problem. So here's my question to, to sum up what we've been talking about. And, and in that, I, I realized one term we didn't really uh, talk about was augmented reality. But a lot of what we are, what you're building is an augmented reality. And in fact, the subtext of a lot of the things we've been talking about is to create some sort of augmented reality that is goes beyond what we have been intuiting before. As, as we said, it's not just reproducing the past. As we were sort of summarizing this conversation, and to my listeners who may want to track what you're doing, understand more about AR, about perceptive AI, about emotion AI, where should they go and where do you go? I, I realize you have access to the entire staff of Affectiva, so it's a little easier for you to stay up to date in this field. But where should outsiders go to track human perception AI, understand yeah. it, and get involved? So a few different areas. Um, I mentioned the partnership on AI just now. I think that's a really excellent place to start because they've published a lot of papers, they've done a lot of research, and they're publishing it on their website and it's accessible there. So PAI.org, partnership on AI. Um, actually, they are going to be coming out in the next few months with an extremely insightful report on emotion AI. As a matter of fact, I just reviewed it yesterday and I was struck by how encompassing it is in terms of identifying the questions we should be asking around emotion AI. So really interesting. Sounds like I should have them on the podcast to explain yes, that report yeah, when exactly, it comes out. Exactly. Yeah. And then of course, you know, we, we are as a company pretty transparent. We talk a lot about the need for the ethical development and deployment of AI. Um, so follow us, you know, on social media. For example, when this report comes out, we will promote this on social media for sure. just to show that, that, to give light to this type of research. And sometime in October, uh, horror of all horrors, because here's another virtual conference. Now. <laughs> you, you're, you're familiar with our Emotion AI Summit. Of course, I am. That, uh, that, uh, you were a fantastic moderator for our first, our, our Master of Ceremonies for our How first. long ago was that? Three years? Four years. I, I think this was going to be the fourth annual. Uh, so four years. Can you believe it? It's crazy. Oh, but anyway, crazy. that was that was amazing. Um, it's been a really successful event where we bring a lot of outside people in to just discuss the broader topics around emotion AI. Of course, we can't do it in person this year. Just to be, we didn't even want to go there. And we're not going to replicate a conference online, but we're still looking at kind of doing a week where we bring package up a lot of content that we're just going to make available to the public touching actually all eyes are going to be on you my friend i will be looking for some <laughs> innovative approaches yeah, I don't that know. are gathering okay. new sense data uh, and uh, yeah. analyzing yeah, <laughs> facial expressions yeah if we could expressions. only integrate our own technology that would be so cool we're, we're thinking about it but um but a lot of the topics that you and i ch uh, talked about today uh, those are themes that we're going to be exploring and kind of making available online as well so that's another mm -hmm. area where people can uh, tune in to learn some more Gabi, I thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for enlightening me and hopefully my listeners on uh, human perception AI.
Thank you, Trond. As always, a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks. You have just listened to episode 16 of the Futurized podcast with host Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of human perception, AI. Our guest was Gabi Zeidervelt, Chief Marketing Officer at Affectiva, the MIT Media Lab spin-out. We talked about perceptive AI, the future of augmented reality, data privacy, and ethical uses of face recognition. My takeaway is that artificial intelligence is getting better and better at understanding humans in context and their cognitive states. This can be useful for autonomous cars, for virtual conference speakers, in telehealth, as well as for advertisers. But is it enough to start rivaling human perception? Not for a while. And perhaps that's not the point. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.